Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 309. Size doesn't matter. Until it does. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Rebecca, Catherine, and Galactus, seriously, that's what it says here, for signing up already. You would think that someone named Edgar the Peaceable would have enjoyed a good reputation. But the closer you look, the more things start to look off. And if you look closer than that, you start to get the sense that maybe things really were off. Last episode, we spoke about the different ways historians approach William of Malmesbury, and how one approach is to see him as reflecting oral histories that would have been floating around during his life, and quite possibly also reflecting written work that didn't make it to us today. Essentially, Malmesbury is giving us a peek into the medieval rumor mill, while rumors aren't facts, they still do provide us a window into how people might have been viewed by their peers, or by their courtiers, as the case may be. And when it came to Edgar, Malmesbury seems to have had plenty of grist to work at the mill, because this did not stop at distressing tales of hapless consorts. He also shares with us quite a bit about how the young king acted in general, and he even tells us how he looked. William tells us that Edgar was reported to be, quote, extremely small in stature and in bulk, end quote. And if that statement stood alone, it wouldn't have been all that important, since it really doesn't convey all that much detail about Edgar's life. But William goes on. He tells us that the king, quote, would voluntarily challenge any person whom he knew to be bold and valiant to engage with him. And his greatest apprehension was, lest they should stand in awe of him in these encounters, end quote. So yeah, Edgar, the king who was small in stature and in bulk, had a habit of running around looking for the biggest, baddest dudes in the kingdom and demanding that they fight him. And that doesn't strike me as the actions of a confident man. And just like with Edgar's love life, William doesn't just give us basic descriptions. He also provides us stories about how anxious the king was about his size. We're told that King Kenneth II of Scotland held a banquet, and he likely had held many of these. I mean, this was a king. And this banquet was like all the others. A celebration. The drinks were flowing, people were telling stories, making jokes, and everyone was having a really good time. And in the middle of this lighthearted environment, King Kenneth decided to play along with the jests. And speaking of his English neighbor... He said, quote, that it seemed extraordinary to him that so many provinces should be subject to such a sorry little fellow, end quote. And everyone was amused, and the party continued on without so much as a hiccup. But a minstrel there took note, and eventually he made his way to King Edgar's court. And Edgar heard the short joke that was made by the Scottish king. And similar to learning of Athelwald's marriage, King Edgar seethed with rage. But once again, he kept that fury to himself. He didn't let on how much the phrase little fellow had bothered him. Instead, he played it off as an amusing joke. Sometime later, he sent for King Kenneth, asking to consult with him on a secret matter of great import. And being that the Northmen were still a potential threat, especially in Scotland, it's not surprising that the Scottish king came to meet with Edgar at once. Claiming that they needed to speak in secret, King Edgar led King Kenneth deep into the woods, 
and Edgar brought with him two swords. Once they were far away from their courtiers and attendants, once they were completely alone, Edgar handed one of the swords to Kenneth. He said, and I'm going to rephrase the translation so it's a little clearer for you to understand, but he said, now that we're alone, I'll have the chance to test your strength and make it clear which one of us should command the other. And don't you dare leave this place without settling this matter with me because you have already disgraced yourself by prattling on at your banquet about me without taking any action. What Edgar was doing here was the medieval version of, how about you say that to my face? And King Kenneth stared in shock and confusion at Edgar. He was trying to make sense of what was happening here. Prattling on at a banquet? Wait, was this about the joke? Now, Kenneth had no desire to fight to the death over something as silly as a joke. So he immediately apologized to Edgar, stressing that it was just a joke that was told at a raucous banquet and it was not intended to offend. And he asked Edgar for his pardon. And Edgar, satisfied with the act of contrition, agreed. And to be clear, this is just a story. We don't know if it actually happened. But here's the thing about that story. It matches pretty well with the other stories we have of Edgar. And William tells it without reservation. When he relates the tale, he just ends it by saying, but what of it? Seriously, that's his response. And then he goes on to talk about the positive impacts that Edgar's military and domestic policies had had. Edgar, by the way, had apparently set up fleets to patrol the coasts for raiders after the Easter festival. So, you know, during raiding season. And that does sound great. But the fact that he set up pretty good coastal patrols doesn't discount his violent temper. It's just a different fact. One thing doesn't cancel out the other. And here's the thing about appearances and popularity. Desirable bodies come and go like fashion. And no matter what the fashion, people have all kinds of preferences. Human beings are diverse, and what we find attractive is equally so. But one thing that's never in fashion is violent insecurity. And everything that William tells us about Edgar gives the impression of a man with an incredibly thin skin, a violent temper, and a bit of a Napoleon complex. Now, it's possible that what we're reading in William's account is the culmination of a bunch of vicious slander. But if that's the case, this slander remains remarkably on theme. Because you might not live in the 10th century, but I'm guessing you feel like you've met this guy. I have definitely met this guy. And William wasn't even trying to deny the unsavory parts of the king's character. Instead, he's just making the strange defense of, well, yeah, but he instituted good policies, so who cares? And if this story about Edgar and Kenneth is true, I think we need to take a long, hard look at the rest of the stories surrounding his reign. Because if this is how he treated a fellow king, I can't help but wonder how much regard he would have given to women who were a permanent underclass during this era. And then there's the other bit of praise that William offers, which, when taken in light of these darker rumors, also becomes a bit disturbing. William says that Edgar carefully watched the behavior of his nobles to ensure that they were, quote, severely avenging violated laws, end quote, and that justice and military strength were being applied for the public good. Now, on its own, that might not be too bad, but the emphasis on the severe, merciless application of justice really does fit that pattern as well, doesn't it? These tales we're getting about King Edgar don't illustrate his mercy or his charity or his empathy for his fellow human beings. They illustrate something else entirely. 
and it's so consistent that I've read multiple scholars who've taken the time to deliberately point out that Edgar's nickname was a reflection of the political state of England and not a reflection on his personal character. And when you've got a bunch of dusty historians wanting to make sure to hammer that point home, even a thousand years later, it catches your attention. But again, we can't know for sure whether these tales of Edgar are true. But I can't shake that sense of a consistent theme. I've said it before, and I'll definitely end up saying it again. There was something weird going on with the House of Wessex, starting at least with Edward the Elder. I don't know if it was how they were being raised, or who was raising them, or what, but I'm getting the distinct impression that empathy was not part of their courtly education. And speaking of something being wrong in that family, I guess Prince Edward's temper wasn't simply the terrible twos, because those tantrums were not going away. Three-year-old Prince Edward was giving the courtiers hell. But up in the north, in the newly titled Dane Law, life continued as it had been doing for generations. As you might remember, even though the Dane Law was now part of England, they were still allowed to maintain their own laws and traditions. And so, when in 965, a man named Thorgils the Harelipped arrived in the north, alongside his brothers and his companions, he was welcomed, just as many other Norse migrants had been welcomed in previous decades. And Thorgils was granted land in a remote part of the northern coast, and he immediately set about building a fort on his new plot of land. And that fort was soon named after him. Well, sort of. They didn't call it Thorgils. The fort was named after his nickname, Harelipped, or, in Old Norse, Scarfy. You can still go there today, actually, and it still carries the same name, Scarborough. And this tale of Thorgils and his brother settling in the north is an excellent example of the degree of independence that we're seeing out of the Danelaw. Scandinavian settlers were coming in and literally founding towns. So that's what's going on up there. Meanwhile, Abbo's work at Ramsey was causing a religious renaissance in the south, and in East Anglia in particular. Furthermore, Bishop Athelwald of Winchester, fresh off from his quest to purge the secular priests from the churches and minsters under his control, was now looking for a new project. And he also would like a new outpost for his religious authority. And it just so happened that there was a monastery at Peterborough that had long been abandoned, thanks to years of neglect and abuse that it suffered at the hands of the nobility. It was perfect for Athelwald. But it was also a good opportunity for King Edgar. Because when he wasn't too busy menacing the local bodybuilders, he was working hard to unite England. See, the thing about creating Danelaw was that it wasn't a retreat from the north and the east. Rather, it was an effort at keeping them within the English sphere of influence. The goal was unity. And Edgar, just like his predecessors, was doing what he could to change the people's sense of identity away from the small kingdoms of the Heptarchy and towards a broader sense of Englishness. However, while his father and uncles had attempted to do that through military and political power, Edgar was going a different route. The thinking was that while the political institutions and the royal dynasties could rise and fall, there was one institution that remained remarkably stable, the religious institutions. They generally held on to their influence, even in Danish-occupied Jorvik. And that meant that even though the Dane law had different laws and customs, it still had abbots and monks and bishops, all of whom shared a religious heritage with the rest of England. 
Furthermore, many of the surviving religious houses in the Danelaw were quite wealthy and could exert a lot of influence in their communities and beyond. For example, powerful churchmen were involved in the politics of the Danelaw, just like their southern cousins. They appeared at councils, served in court, and aided the nobles in the running of their territories. So if those houses could be brought in line with the Benedictine reformist movement that was sweeping the rest of England, then they could help stitch the kingdom together by providing a sense of uniformity. Even though the Danes still held a lot of power and were doing things like naming towns after a guy's hair lip, England still had inroads into that territory because these religious houses could push for English reforms, not just within their own communities, but throughout Danelaw as a whole. And so, in 966, likely with King Edgar's support, Athelwald restored the monastery at Medhamstead, which was now being called Peterborough. And that meant that the Bishop of Winchester had a power base in the growing ecclesiastical community of East Anglia. Four years later, in 970, he pushed even deeper into the Danelaw and restored the monastery at Ely. The Benedictine reformers were surging. And although he wasn't the Archbishop of Canterbury, Bishop Athelwald was out on the vanguard of this movement. And now that the Benedictine monasteries were becoming much more common, and now that Bishop Athelwald had cemented his power, not only in Wessex and Abingdon, but far beyond, well, now it was time to address a critical problem with the English church. Namely, even though Benedictine thought was being actively promoted, there was still a lot of variation in the way Christianity was being practiced, even among the Benedictines. I got a question from a listener the other day who wanted a breakdown of precisely what these Benedictine reforms would have looked like. And if it still feels a little undefined to you, there's a reason for that. The truth is that what precisely is a Benedictine reform was a question that a lot of people were having at the time of the Benedictine reform. And the answers that you would have gotten would depend on who you were asking. And this was a problem because Athelwald and others were calling not just for reform of the practice, but uniformity of practice throughout England. But it's not like they had a guidebook that could be handed out to everyone. What they had were a series of rules that were established by St. Benedict in the 6th century. And then they had some Frankish interpretations of those rules from the 7th and 8th centuries during the reigns of Charlemagne and Louis the Pious. But this was the late 10th century, 400 years after the death of St. Benedict. If you want to have a sense of how difficult this task might have been, imagine trying to reform the schools of the UK now using the philosophy of an Elizabethan tutor. But it's actually a little bit worse than that, because what St. Benedict built was meant for the self-sufficient monasteries of Italy. And as a consequence, it covered things like the classification of different kinds of monks, and how monks shouldn't laugh too much, and how the dormitory should be organized, and how monks couldn't own personal property, and what sort of punishment you should get if you're late to dinner, and how monks should behave if they're on a road trip, and how monks are not supposed to punch each other. Seriously, those rules and many others can be found in the rules of St. Benedict. And I'm sure that pontificating on the proper sleepwear of monks was quite useful at the monastery at Monte Cassino, but the full ecclesiastical apparatus of the Kingdom of England was quite different from a single self-sufficient Italian monastery. And while that rule about how guests at a monastery needed to be under special observation and weren't free to associate with the rest of the monks probably did help keep Monte Cassino from turning into a frat house, 
that rule and many of the other rules weren't going to be all that useful for the administration of an entire kingdom. Moreover, the Benedictine rules definitely didn't give a clear answer on how to properly institute those rules on recalcitrant communities, which is a serious problem if that's the foundational document for your aggressive reformist movement. Now granted, there were some modifications that were made to those rules, and they did make them a little more useful. For example, later Frankish interpretations from the major Benedictine houses in Fleury and Ghent did add some details. But overall, there was a lot of important aspects of English religious life that the rules of St. Benedict simply did not cover. And I can't stress this enough, that was a serious issue because the Benedictine reformers of England weren't making a small request for a few simple changes. This was a radical movement, and many of the leading lights within it took an incredibly hardline view on the matter. Benedictine life wasn't just a better way to live a religious life. It was the only acceptable way to live. And if you weren't in keeping with the rules, then you were failing in your duties and quite possibly living in sin. And a rallying cry of, get it right or your soul is in peril, doesn't leave you with a lot of wiggle room. And yet, St. Benedict didn't address all the questions surrounding 10th century British life. And so, in response, many of these communities, even if they were fully on board with the idea of reform, were being left to make their own interpretations of the rules in an effort to plast over some of the cracks between theory and practice. And you can see the problems inherent in that system, can't you? Different reformers were going to come up with different interpretations. And they were already interacting with a whole host of religious houses that had their own style of religious observances that had developed over the last 300 years. So you had churchmen coming in and saying that these houses needed to abandon their ways. Ways that were centuries old, because they were ways that weren't uniform. But the problem was that the reforms that they were demanding weren't even uniform themselves. And even the method of reformation wasn't uniformly agreed upon by these reformers. That makes it a hard sell. And the reformers were running into a classic problem that many revolutionary movements have dealt with throughout history. And make no mistake about it, Dunstan and his followers were revolutionaries. They were looking to overturn the system. And like most revolutionaries, when the Benedictines started, they were hopelessly outnumbered. So questions over the particulars of how to reform and what the reforms would be were being put on the back burner because they really had bigger fish to fry. I mean, who cares about questions over what constitutes proper sleepwear for a monk when you're too busy just trying to keep Brother Athelbrad from privatizing your dormitory? So in those early days, allies were freely accepted because they were simply trying to enact some sort of reform. And then they would just work out the details of exactly what those reforms would be at a later date. And that had served them pretty well in the early stages. But by 970, they weren't an insurrectionist movement anymore. They weren't the outsiders seeking to gain power. They won. The Benedictines now held the Archbishopric of Canterbury, had support of the king, and were establishing new Benedictine monasteries all over the place. They were the establishment. And that meant their role had changed. They didn't need to overthrow anyone. They needed to govern. But they couldn't even agree on core issues, like what rules they should be governing under. And that is just a mind-boggling problem, because one of their main talking points was that failing to adhere to their uniform practices was a sin. 
but they didn't even have uniform practices yet. Oops. At the moment of their success, this whole thing was threatening to come apart at the seams. And to head off the danger, a synod was held at Winchester in 970. The idea was that the Synod Council would create a common set of rules that would dictate religious life in England, but they still needed someone to draft it. Someone with enough authority among the reformers that his efforts would be trusted, but also someone with enough influence that he could drag reluctant members of the council into agreement, and someone who was knowledgeable enough regarding Benedictine life, as well as English ecclesiastical needs, such that he would be able to fuse the two together. The choice was clear. Bishop Athelwald of Winchester would draft the rules. And Athelwald was no fool. He knew how to play to a crowd. And the first person that he needed to focus on was the king. If King Edgar didn't like these rules, they would be in serious trouble. So Athelwald's code begins by stating how monasteries had been devastated by years of neglect and mistreatment. And that King Edgar was seeking to restore them to glory by driving out, quote, the negligent clerks with their abominations, end quote. In doing this, Athelwald was falling into a fairly common trope for radical movements. And it's a trope because of how effective it is. Namely, he cast his radical reformation movement as anything but. Athelwald declared that his project wasn't a movement at all but an attempt to restore the church to a noble past. And that makes sense, because if Athelwald came forward and just said, I'm going to change everything and make something brand new, then chances are he'd get a lot of pushback, because new things are untested, and that scares some people, particularly powerful people. So instead, he created an imagined past, a time when everything was good and pure and pious. And do you think it mattered that that past never existed? Hell no. What mattered was that apparently England used to be great, but now it wasn't. And so Athelwald and the reformers hijacked the past and used it for their own purposes. As an example, do you remember Bede? Well, he talked about monasteries in his writing. And the reformers saw this and took it a step further, claiming that he was talking about Benedictine monasticism. Which, you BHPers would know, he wasn't. But... Who cares? Because the myth of a Benedictine past fit right in with this sense of paradise lost. But a sales pitch like this requires a villain. You need someone to blame for being cast out of this English Eden that Athelwald had just invented. And Athelwald had just the people. The clerks. Those secular priests. And just to make sure that you knew they were the villains, he tells you that they're lazy degenerates. And who would save you from that group of others who are ruining everything? Well, Benedictine reform. That is what would return England to greatness. Does this sound familiar to you? Well, it's because you've seen it before. This is a tactic that is used again and again in history. And there's no indication that it will stop being used anytime soon, for whatever purpose it's being bent to. But that being said, Athelwald did add a little twist to this story of propaganda. Even though this reformation was being driven by Dunstan, Oswald, and Athelwald, Bishop Athelwald decided to give King Edgar the credit for it. Why? Well, because flattery is a good idea when you're dealing with someone who has a reputation for insecurity. Furthermore, it seems that Athelwald was aware of the difficult position that these reforms put him in with regard to the crown. 
You see, over the centuries, the nobility, and the crown in particular, had developed a lot of control over the religious houses. They were making a lot of money and prestige off them. And these reforms sought to break a lot of that. So perhaps as a way to throw a bone to King Edgar and the royal dynasty, Bishop Athelwald took care to bind the monasteries to the monarchy. Athelwald's code specifically dictated that the king and his family were the defenders of the monastic order of England. And as such, prayers should be said for him and his family. So now, according to these rules, you'd have religious men carrying out rituals and saying prayers in honor of the royal family. Sounds a lot like a royal cult, doesn't it? Only this time, rather than being restricted to a single location like Old Minster, now all the religious houses would be required to proclaim the greatness of the royal family in their prayers. And that sounds like exactly the sort of thing that might appeal to an insecure king. But, that being said, Athelwald did need to convince more than just Edgar if he wanted to see these reforms enacted. He needed the clergy on his side as well. And he was all too aware of how much influence Abbo of Fleury had been gaining in recent years. So he goes on to state how these reforms were being drawn from major thinkers of Fleury and Ghent, Abbo's territory. Now the rules that followed were very closely aligned with the Benedictine monasticism that was occurring on the continent. And as a result, it did also make it quite clear that England was breaking with early Celtic monasticism as well as early English monasticism. But at the same time, while the rules were closely connected to continental Benedictine practice, they weren't an exact duplication. What was written had its own distinct Anglo-Saxon flavor, adding in all manner of additional rules that were necessary for the running of English ecclesiastical life. For example, questions of how bishops should be elected, which wasn't exactly on the mind of St. Benedict when he was working out how an isolated monastery should be operating in the Mediterranean, would have to be addressed by these rules. So Athelwald filled in the gaps. And he called his code the Regularis Concordia. And his additions didn't just impact the bureaucracy of the English church. They even changed the way that religious houses would function on a day-to-day -day basis, well beyond St. Benedictine's ideas. For example, streams were required to be diverted to provide water to monasteries. Walls and hedges were required to be built around urban monasteries. And Athelwald's intent here was clear. He wanted monks and their religious houses to be removed and protected from secular life, even the houses that were located within the towns and cities. And part and parcel to these reforms was the fact that lands and resources would be protected from the looting that they'd endured at the hands of greedy overlords for generations. And furthermore, lost property and rights would be returning to them. Needless to say, this appealed to the churchmen at the Synod, and Athelwald's Regularis was put into effect. And soon after it was established, we see even more monasteries being refounded in England, naturally under the provision that they would strictly adhere to the new English monasticism that Athelwald had codified. The balance of power was tipping heavily in their favor, and the long-term effects of this reform are immense. In fact, some of the most influential religious institutions during the medieval period gained much of their power during these critical few years. That's how much wealth they amassed in the Reformation period, because not only were rights and revenue streams returning to the reformed monasteries, the kings and his allies were also granting huge endowments to these same institutions. 
This was a period of incredible growth for many of the Benedictine houses of England. For example, this was the period where Ely became such a large and influential house. And as a sign of how influential and powerful these Benedictine monasteries became, they will even manage to retain their status even after the Norman Conquest. But these reforms weren't just about money, bureaucracy, and prayers. The reformist movement also spurred on cultural changes. One of them is the famous and distinctive Benedictine form of illumination that comes out of this period. It's called the Winchester style, and is heavily influenced by Carolingian styles. But this Winchester style went on to become the mainstream style of illumination in the late Anglo-Saxon period, and it came out of this era. Furthermore, Athelwald was on the forefront of educating people in religious matters. He was using the vernacular language rather than Latin to do it. This made education much more accessible, and it's likely that Athelwald's school at Winchester was responsible for the development of a standardized form of Old English. And it's hard to overstate the impact of this. In fact, it was so influential that much of the Old English literature that survived comes from disciples of the Benedictine reformers. Everything was changing with these guys. But, while on the one hand, the Benedictines did seem to value accessibility and literacy, on the other hand, they had a habit of keeping things just obscure enough to feel cool. Because it was during this same period that the reformers adopted and promoted the use of an obscure and honestly really weird form of Latin. It was called the hermeneutic style. And this style of Latin was wordy, purple, and intentionally used obscure words, bizarre syntax, and a needlessly complex sentence structure. And if you're wondering why this was adopted, considering how difficult it would have been to use and how Latin was already a dying language, well, my guess is that the reformers thought it sounded smart and fancy. You know that guy who insists on saying masticate rather than chew? Yeah, behind the monastery walls, these new men of the cloth were praying, contemplating, abstaining, and showing off their superior vocabularies. You know, I'm guessing that the townsfolk were probably pretty happy that they decided they were going to keep to themselves from now on. But then again, as annoying as they sound, hanging out with them probably was a bit safer than going into the woods with Edgar. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. We're also on pretty much everything, and you can find links to all our communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 